I think real estate can be overcomplicated in a lot of ways. And whether you're doing a $100 million development project or a fix and flip, you really got to know three things. You got to know what's it worth when I make it better? What's it cost to make it better? And then what can I pay for it for a good margin? And those three things apply, I think, to any deal you're doing. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Jacob Vanderslice. Jacob is a principal at Van West Partners, which is a Denver-based real estate investment firm focusing on the acquisition and management of self-storage centers and other opportunistic real estate in the United States. Van West has established a track record, now has over $195 million in assets under management. So I'm going to just stop right there and just say, Jacob, welcome to the show. Matt, thanks for having us today. We appreciate it. Excited to be here. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? I'm, I'm pretty plain. Uh, I, I like vanilla with chocolate sauce. Okay. Okay. No. Is there a particular vanilla in the Denver area that you're a fan of? No, not really. Just kind of whatever I can source. Uh, we don't keep too much of it at home because our three and two-year-olds want to eat nothing but that. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty neutral on it. Vanilla yeah. with chocolate. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm doing Whole30 for January right now. So we're going to switch quickly off of ice cream because I am still- well, done. I've, I've done a few Whole30s and that is uh, that is not easy, especially the drinking part for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm on day 13 now and I'm just now getting over the, I want sugar every, every day of the week. And I'll tell you the hardest part for me really is that your convenience foods that you don't even realize you're grabbing like a sandwich or yep. a kind bar that has some sugar in it and all that kind of stuff. It's really hard not to, uh, not to eat that stuff. Well, keep powering through. You're almost halfway there. Yep. Yep. There you go. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? So we primarily uh, focus on self-storage these days. We've touched a lot of asset classes over the years. Um, last year, which is, I guess, a few weeks ago, we bought about $110 million worth of self-storage. We're closing out our most recent self-storage fund and launching a new one in about a month. So mainly self-storage. We dabble in some retail and residential and some development stuff on the side. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, um, I know you have an interesting background. Where did your real estate journey begin? I was in the fire service out of college. And in the fire service, you only work 10 days a month. So you've got some time on your hands. And I started doing um, fix and flips on my days off and kind of got busy doing those and scaled up and quit my fire job and have been doing real estate ever since. Uh, our first years of being in real estate, um, we mostly sourced residential deals at the trustee sales. And those were good days because you'd show up in your shorts and flip-flops with your cashier's checks. You'd buy five to 10 deals a week, rehab them, sell them. And then we pivoted to, uh, as that kind of dried up to direct to seller marketing, direct mail, PPC, you know, AdWords, stuff like that. Around 13 and 14, we got into commercial real estate and we started doing adaptive reuse retail projects, which is basically converting older warehouse buildings around Denver. I'm sure you have lots of these in Nashville and you've seen a lot of these projects there too. Converting big, old, cool warehouses into multi-tenant experience-based retail concepts. Uh, Did some breweries, some restaurants, some gyms. Uh, We sold a few of those off and have held on to others. And that was really our only kind of uh, pain point line of business during the pandemic, not the route of the pandemic by any means, but our retail users definitely suffered. But thankfully, all of our tenants made it through with the exception of one. So we came out fairly unscathed. And then we got to self-storage in 2015 and we started off with ground development and we'd studied the asset class for a while and we liked the the downside protection, the historic performance in, in, in declining economic times and the scalability. So we built a few projects in Denver, uh, moved to the Milwaukee market in 2016, did a number of deals out there um, and kind of kept going. We're mainly in the uh, the Midwest and Southeast these days. 
Gotcha. Well, I want to get into the redaptive reuse and the development, but before we get there, how did you balance uh, having a W-2 with the firefighters and the um, the fix and flips on the rehab? Like, talk us through that time of your your career. Yeah, I, I wasn't in the fire service that long. It was I was probably only in career for less than two years, and I didn't really get into real estate until halfway through it. And having a W-2 in a job like that is very different than like a nine to five W-2 because you only work 10 days a month. So you have 20 days a month to go out and do other stuff. And yeah, you're, you might be tired from running calls all night and you get up the next day, you don't want to go do something else. But I was in my early twenties with uh, lots of energy and stamina, which I still have, but not so much as I used to. Um, so it wasn't too big of a balance. And then uh, I realized I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur and, um, you know, kind of uh, make my own destiny, I guess, in business. So that's the route that I went. How did you, how did you learn about it? Cause I imagine like today, information is very, very prevalent. It's right at your fingertip. We've got bigger pockets where you can connect with real estate investors and ask questions that are coming up. Like, do you remember how you really learned about that? Did you have a mentor or anything like that? No, not really. I, um, I learned by failing over and over and over again. I like it. That's really all I can say. Yeah. Yep. Learn by failing. Yeah. Yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. So then you shifted more into the commercial asset. Was there a reason why you shifted from kind of the fix and flip to more of the commercial space? If you're doing residential and you're buying, fixing, and selling, it's so transactional, right? You're not you're, you're creating cash, but I, I didn't realize this till many years later. You're not really creating wealth. You're 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 doing a deal to make money and doing it over and over again. So we liked the shift in commercial because it's more cash flow focus and a long term hold focus. Um, and one of the projects we did uh, that we're really most proud of is this deal at 22nd in California in downtown Denver. It's this massive old 100, 100 plus year old uh, brick warehouse brought all the architectural features back. We did a historic preservation type rehab on it. So we, we kind of kept the, the feel of it from back in the day. And uh, we still own that and we're not going to sell it. Um, we refinanced a bunch of the equity back out a couple of years ago, actually right before COVID. So we got away with, uh, we, we got away with murder there. I think we refied it in January of 20 and then COVID hit retail in, in March and April of 20. Um, so yeah, we, we paid a bunch of our capital back to investors and ourselves, and, uh, we've got long-term debt on it. We're just going to strap it and hang on to it, but we, we like cash flow a lot and we're trying to get away. Uh, we still do this occasionally, but, um, we're more long-term holders more so than we used to be. And we're trying to get away from being overly transactional and being, being more focused on long-term debt, long-term cash flow. And, you know, as you grow cash flow and NOI by default, the value of your asset base is increasing. So there's, there's a time and a place to monetize that at some point, but uh, we're not doing that anytime soon. Yeah. And I think anybody that's been in real estate long enough has that property in their portfolio where it's just kind of your, your trophy piece. You don't want to get rid of it. Mine, mine is my first uh, townhome that I ever purchased. It's one I lived in for 10 years and now it's a rental. It's been off decent cash flow. It's not great. I could probably do redeploy that capital better if I'd sold that property, but it's just a, just a piece for me. So we'll try yeah, I, I talked to a lot of older wealthy investors and asked them, how'd you get here? And they said, well, uh, you know, I bought stuff and I never sold it. Yep. And that's it. Yep. yep. Yeah. Well, I want to go to the uh, redaptive reuse of the commercial space, because I've heard you talk uh, about a couple of projects that you have done. And as we're kind of entering this weird phase in our economy, coming back out of COVID, where some people are going back into the office, a lot of companies are not going back into the office. You've kind of picked apart some of these office buildings and done some reuse to them. Can you talk us through maybe one or two of those projects and, and what you've done there? Yeah, we've done a we've done a couple industrial conversions from industrial into self storage. Those are a little bit simpler because you've got slab on grade, big open space, clear span buildings, and you're basically just demoing what's inside. You're putting in storage units. You're doing new roofing, new HVAC, new paint, new flooring, and you've got a storage facility. 
Um, one of the deals that we did that was more interesting was a, uh, a seven-story office building close to downtown Denver. And we converted that from kind of busted Ron Anchorman style office space into self-storage. And the most fascinating part of the project was the structural reinforcement you need to do to, to get it up to the four loads that support self-storage. And that basically involved um, a bunch of paper mache on the structural members, this carbon fiber paper mache. And you go in there and you install this paper mache, it hardens, and you looked all over the building before we put it back together. And there's just all this black paper mache in the structural members. And uh, $800,000 later in um, carbon fiber paper mache, the floor loads went from too low to adequate. So that was interesting. Yeah. Was that one of your, I'm assuming that wasn't one of your first projects you did? That was probably our, our third or fourth. Here in okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was back in about uh, probably 16, 17. Had you done, you had done development at that point then? We had built uh, two projects uh, in downtown Denver from the ground up, and those were still underway at the time. We kind of did all these pretty close together. Um, outside of storage, we had built a, a number of townhomes and duplexes, uh, did a 10-unit project, a seven-unit project, um, and probably six or seven two-unit duplexes. So hadn't built self-storage before, and the first time you build anything new is the first time you build anything new, and you're yep. going to learn a lot. Yeah. Did you find that your your connections from the fix and flip and the rehab on the residential properties helped you transition to doing some of these re revitalizations yeah, of these properties? I think I think real estate can be overcomplicated in a lot of ways. And whether you're doing a hundred million dollar development project or a fix and flip, you really got to know three things. You got to know what's it worth when I make it better, what's it cost to make it better, and then what can I pay for it for a good margin. And those yeah. three things apply, I think, to any deal you're doing. There's yeah, a lot no, of that goes into it, of course, but those are kind of the nuts and bolts that we've applied. Very simple way to think about it. And I like that. Yeah. I never really kind of broke it down that way. Yeah, you can certainly complicate it, but that's, you know, regardless of the deal size and the strategy, that's really what you're looking at. Yep. Yep. So you decided to make this shift into self-storage. And, and I kind of want you to talk, if you could, a little bit about kind of the economics around self-storage for some of our listeners that might not know what self-storage is. Let's start with what it is and then kind of why you were attracted to the asset class. Yeah, self-storage is a, is a unique asset class for a couple of different reasons. Um, one of them is all the leases are month to month. So no one's on a 10-year lease like, a, like an office user or industrial user might be. So with this month to month lease, it's, it's interesting for customers because they can come and go as they please. And what happens is most of them stay longer than they expect. Most people think they need their storage unit for six months and they stay for 18 months. They'll spend you know two grand in rent to store a thousand bucks worth of stuff. That's just how it works. Um, and the month-to-month lease is also interesting for the ownership side because it allows us to respond real-time to supply and demand changes, both at the sub-market level and the facility level. So, for example, let's say you have a certain unit type that's really full. Uh, all, these, all these unit types are full. You can raise rates with a 30-day notice of, say, $10 a month. And most people won't move out because it's still cheaper than the guy next door. They don't want to move their stuff. They don't want to get a buddy on the weekend to rent a U-Haul and move their stuff across town, whatever the case might be. Um, and 10 bucks may not seem like a lot, but when you amortize that across 500 units, you annualize that, you put a cap rate on it, that's a lot of value creation. And likewise, if you have a unit type that's lower occupancy, you can drop rates below market on that unit type and fill them up faster. So we like the kind of granular aspect of the revenue management and the revenue streams. And as opposed to relying on one big tenant to pay us 50 grand a month, we're relying on thousands of tenants to pay us a similar number. And the chances that all of them roll over at the same time are pretty low. 
Yeah. And thinking about it from a multifamily standpoint too, I love the idea of a month to month lease because in multifamily, for instance, you could be signing a 12 month, 18 month, 24 month lease. And if market dynamics change, then your ability to go claw back that extra rent is, is really, really hard and really, really difficult. And depending on your market, it could be a very, very difficult process to kind of move people out that aren't paying their mortgage as well, or their, their rents as well. What does that process look like on the self-storage side? You mentioned 30 day notice. So it's April one, you give them 30 day notice, May one, the rent's going up. Let's say they don't pay by May 15th. What's kind of the quote unquote foreclosure process look like there? Yeah. I'm going to sound like a dirty, uh, dirty capitalist here, but there are no fair housing laws and self-storage. So if you, if you don't pay, the ownership's first line of defense is you get your gate access turned off. You can no longer come in the building. And let's say you get in the building still, you follow a car through the gate, whatever the case might be. The next line of defense, which we typically wait three weeks or so or longer, is to overlock the customer's units or put a new padlock on it so they can't get to their stuff. And then if enough time goes by further, you auction the contents of the unit. And it's a pretty basic process. It varies by you know municipality, municipality, but uh, you pretty much make a publication in the local newspaper that nobody reads. And then you have an auction company oversee the auction. And then your proceeds from the sale of the goods in there um, first go to paying the customer's bill. And then any excess, which is pretty rare, goes back to the customer. So the point in auctioning units is not so much to get money, but to get a unit back in service. Yep. And then so it's, a, it's a 45 to 60 day process from their first delinquency to when we actually get their unit back in service. Gotcha. Gotcha. Which if you own uh, uh, single family or multifamily homes in Texas might seem like a ton of time, but if you own them in Los Angeles or Chicago or New York or Portland or things like that, that is a really, really quick turnaround time. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't happen too often. Uh, mainly our auctions are a little bit heavier after we buy a new deal because the the prior ownership group wasn't good at collections. There's a lot of delinquency. They just kind of gave up and you know made their money and sold. So our auction rates are pretty high in the first couple quarters after we take over a new deal and they kind of go down from there. What is high? What's considered high for that? Let's say it's a $10 million deal. You might have uh, $30,000 or $40,000 worth of write-offs um, on uh, annual revenue of maybe 800000 bucks, something like that. And that kind of goes down over time. So gotcha. it varies from property to property, but um, you typically want your delinquency rate to be around 2%. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I know some of the uh, indicators that you look at from a multifamily standpoint and self-storage are similar and in line, but could you talk us through like, what are you looking for in a market? Because I've heard that self-storage is a little bit more localized than let's say a multifamily deal. It is. It's very local supply sensitive and it varies from market to market like any asset class would. But in self-storage, we track supply ratios first and foremost in the one, three and five mile trade radius. Nationally, there's about seven square feet per capita of storage. And, uh, some markets can support more supply than that because rents are lower, which means that more customers can afford to store. So in a market that maybe has 80 cent rents per foot per month, maybe that market can support 12 to 15 square feet per capita. But a market like Seattle or Portland, for example, where rents are $2.50 a foot, supply shock there can be a lot more pronounced and you can see much more of a fast decline in rates. So it's kind of market by market. Uh, but supply ratio is one of the first things we look at. We look at the ratio um, of existing uh, customer rents to market rents. So we try to target facilities that are obviously below market rates. Maybe the market says it's a dollar. This facility's got 80 cent rates. So even though we're buying it full, we know we can raise rates over time and go from a, a 6% yield on cost to an eight after say two and a half, three years. Um, and then beyond, beyond storage specific metrics, we look at uh, just good, good uh, real estate fundamentals, good markets with population growth, good wages, good unemployment, 
um, just kind of real estate 101, buying good locations. Yeah. Yeah. Are there specific markets out there that are hotter than others for self-storage? Like what, what markets are you looking at right now? So our, our states that we currently operate in are, um, are obviously Colorado, uh, Wisconsin, Illinois, Ohio, uh, Michigan, Tennessee, Florida, North Carolina, and Georgia. Those are our current target markets. We have, we have one small deal in, in Iowa, um, but we can't find more out there for whatever reason. So like the Midwest and Southeast part of it, and we found those markets are a good blend between current cash flow, but also upside. Um, and the primary markets, what we're finding is a lot of cap rate compression. And there's been a lot of demand uh, for self-storage from the uh, investment world the last couple of years, just because how well it's done with COVID. Um, so we're seeing cap rates being pushed down and pricing being pushed up. And um, in a primary market, you might buy a deal, you've got some good upside on, but your cash flow on that deal during the whole period is probably pretty light. So we found these secondary and tertiary markets kind of a good blend of, of cash flow and, and capital appreciation. Are you are you doing any development in those markets today or just all buying? So these these markets that we're in in general lately don't support new development. It's because rates or rents are not high enough to support that. So if you're going to spend 150 a foot to build, you know, we're buying these things as is at 100 bucks a foot. So our rents are not going to be 50% higher because we built a new facility when our deal down the streets, you know, a lot lower. We are rolling out a development program this year. We haven't developed for quite a few years because it just hasn't made sense to. And we're targeting markets that are really high barrier to entry, uh, more infill locations that are tough to entitle, tough to replicate. Uh, so we've got a few deals that we're working on in Denver. We have a deal in Austin, Texas that we're working on. Um, and then we have some deals in the Pacific Northwest that we're, we're looking at too. Talk me through a little bit of that is, so one thing that I find in the mobile home space, for example, is there's this not in my backyard mentality from Congress or, or oh. from officials and things like that. Because essentially, if they have some valuable land at their disposal, they would much rather have a fancy hotel or something that brings jobs. Are you finding the same from city councils across the country that they don't want to develop self-storage? Or what's what's kind of the feedback there? Yeah, we are. And it's certainly tougher to get entitled than it used to be. Most of the sites that we select um, are either an approved use for self-storage or a conditional use, which means you got to jump through a few hoops, but you probably get it approved. It's rare that we're trying to get something rezoned. It's just, uh, as you mentioned, the main reason cities don't want it is it's got a negative connotation because they picture like a public storage facility that was built 40 years ago. It's ugly. It's got razor wire. Um, the stuff that we build is, is multi-story glass. It's really pretty. But beyond the kind of subjective sentiment on self-storage, uh, another reason cities don't want it is the sales tax revenue. They want to wait for a grocer to come in or to your point earlier, a hotel. Um, sales tax revenue from storage is not what it would be with a uh, you know, a Costco, for example, but chances are Costco doesn't want that site. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. a really good point. I didn't think about the sales tax portion of it. Um, yeah. So you're doing a little bit of development, maybe going into this year, but your primary focus is really on just rehabbing some of these older facilities where you can maybe increase the NOI and help the cap rate uh, as you go to exit the funds. Um, what is your, what's your strategy, right? So you, you grab one of these units and you need to put lipstick on a pig or help raise the, uh, the value of that. What, talk us through some of the things that you would do from acquisition to uh, fully operationalizing it. Yeah, most of our value creation strategy comes on the management side and less so on the capital improvement side for our income focus. So we're, we're buying a deal, we'll probably put in between 100K to 250 in capital improvements. And that's usually involving you know, seal coating the asphalt, uh, deferred maintenance issues, new gate system, new camera system, painting the doors, 
redoing the leasing office. So there's not a lot of heavy lifting on the capital improvement side. Most of it's on the management side. And the way we add value on the revenue side and the NOI side is a couple ways. We layer in ancillary revenue streams like late fees, tenant insurance. So when you when you buy a or when you rent a rental car, right, they pitch you to buy their insurance. You probably say no because you have it on your auto policy. A lot of people don't have it though, so they buy it. And the premium on that stuff is pretty substantial. So we'll we'll charge our customers 10 to 12 bucks a month for a protection plan that covers their contents up to five grand and our premium to our carriers two bucks. So round numbers, we net 10 and we use 10 bucks earlier as an example on the revenue increase side. And again, it's not, it's not a lot of money, but you amortize that across a lot of units, put a cap rate on it and you've created some value. We'll also, the two deal types we're buying in the context of our funds, we'll buy deals that are full, but those deals have below market rents and below market uh, ancillary revenue streams. We'll buy deals that are lower occupancy too. So the lower occupancy deal types, say we buy something at 60% physical our year one business plan is to grow occupancy and not so much push up rates. And on a deal that we're buying at 95%, for example, our year one business plan is to layer in those ancillary revenue streams and raise rates on below market customers and new move-ins. So it kind of depends on the occupancy when we buy it as to what our plan is in the first year. But um, most of the value is on the operation side and less so on the capital improvement side. Yeah, I don't want to breeze by that point about the insurance. I've heard you say that before. That is just a genius idea. Um, I don't know if most self-storage uh, operators do that. Certainly none that I've talked to. You just basically said that you're getting insurance for $2 from your carrier and then charging your tenants $10 or $12 a month, netting that 10. But again, that 10 is $120 a month times how many ever units. And then you divide that by the cap rate. And all of a sudden, you've just increased your uh, value on the asset overall. That's, I mean, that's a tremendous, tremendous business opportunity right there. Yeah. I wish I could say it was my idea. I've, I've never had a new idea. I've just copied other people's ideas. Yeah. yeah. Well, you can steal it here. There you go. All right. It was my idea. He invented <laughs> insurance and self-storage. Yeah. Well, um, from an occupancy standpoint, one of the things you mentioned that was kind of going in and helping raise the rent or helping raise the uh, market price of some of those units already. And some of those uh, reasons why sellers are looking to sell is because they're not good at collecting. Have you had any stories uh, that you would um, talk us through about how you've been able to do that or anything that pops to mind as an interesting story around that? In terms of raising revenue? Well, just in terms of like, I'm sure there's an interesting story of you finding a million dollars of cash in a unit or... Yeah, yeah. We, I watched had, the history um, show. We've had, an, unfortunately, uh, we've got a big homeless problem in Denver. And so we'll have a lot of folks sleep in units that aren't supposed to. Uh, we've curtailed that quite a bit, but they'll come in right before the facility closes down. They'll close the door. And before you know it, you're a multifamily operator, more so than a storage operator. Um, and bad things happen in those units at night. So we try to avoid that as much as possible. Uh, we've had some theft issues over the years. Um, you know, we have almost 20,000 units as of today. So I guarantee you right now, someone's stealing something from someone else's unit. Um, we had a guy uh, steal a U-Haul, put new decals on it. So you couldn't tell it was a U-Haul, switch out the plates. And uh, he was a career criminal and he had some meth in his unit. He wasn't cooking, thankfully, he just was storing it there. And we got wind of this and called the cops. The cops took him down at gunpoint gun uh, outside of our office window. We have storage underneath our office building. And uh, you can imagine we were all uh, glued to the window, like Garfield characters watching this thing happen. And the guy reached in his pocket, took out a meth pipe and threw it across the fence, thinking the cops wouldn't see him do that. And when you reach in your pocket and you're being held at gunpoint, bad things happen. And thankfully, nothing bad happened there. They just arrested him in the parking lot and hauled him off. 
But um, yeah, we get uh, we get some unsavory characters here and there, especially in our infill locations. Not so much our suburban stuff, um, but homelessness is you know it's a big issue across the country, and um, people have nowhere to stay, so they rent a storage unit and pull the door down and hope nobody notices. Yeah, the U-Haul story. That's crazy. I'm sure that was an interesting day in the office. It was. We didn't get a lot of work done, but uh, <laughs> we, were, we were certainly uh, entertained. Yeah. yeah. Now, when you're thinking about some of these challenges, somebody out there might say, hey, this is why I wouldn't invest in that asset class. I'm sure if you just underwrite the the, the percentages that this is going to happen, and if you own multifamily, it's going to happen that you're going to have to evict people. Is that the same kind of thought process that you're going through there? Yeah, it's uh, it's a, uh, it's all in the spreadsheet. It's all in the model. And uh, the one consistent things about our models is they're always wrong, right? They're either wrong in the right way or the wrong way, but they're always wrong. A deal never goes exactly like you think it will. Uh, but we bake in delinquency rates and concessions on a lease-up deal, uh, bad debt write-offs, stuff like that. And it's just, uh, it happens in business, right? You're, you've got thousands of customers paying you between 50 to 250 a month. And uh, any given month, you're going to have a few challenges with those folks. Yeah, there's um, self-storage is a very interesting uh, niche with inside of real estate. I think it's one of those more underappreciated uh, asset classes for the normal people. Uh, W-2 employee that might not know a ton about real estate, but we're seeing a lot of institutional money flow into this space. How are you all able to kind of compete with that, um, with those funds today? Competition is just fierce right now. Absolutely fierce. There's so much demand for the product type in the private equity world and institutional world. Um, A lot of the deals that we get are through broker relationships before they hit the market. Um, If it's a deal that's widely marketed with a professional broker, the chances of us getting that deal are very low. We're off by millions sometimes in our in our offer pricing. Um, So a lot of it's just kind of relationship development, uh, finding out about sellers that are taking something to market soon. We do some direct to seller marketing. We've gotten a few deals over the years doing that. Not a ton, but it, it does work. So it's worth doing it. Um, but deal flow is challenging because a lot of guys like us are out there and, uh, a lot of the buyers right now did not get into the space until, you know, two years ago, they've got a lot of money and they're paying premiums to participate in the asset class. So yeah. deal flow is challenging and competition is definitely uh, challenging too. Yeah. We're coming through a difficult time too, with inflation, the way it is, uh, as we're recording this last week, the fed announced that there was a 7% interest rate or 7% in the inflation numbers. And we're expecting some, uh, uh, interest rate hikes going into this year. Are, are you all doing anything different in your underwriting or your your advertising for units or trying to find de- deals today? Uh, deal flow, we're just pounding the pavement, kind of doing the same way we always have in our real estate careers. Um, you know, you mentioned inflation. Inflation, in theory, can be a good thing for self storage because all the leases are month to month. So as as the dollar doesn't go further, your rates increase. Uh, one of the challenges, though, with inflation is your OPEX is going to go up, too. You're paying your on-site, your on-site managers more money. Your property taxes are going up. Your utilities are going up. Your repairs and maintenance are going up. Um, one thing we're generally trying to do, though, to kind of mitigate against uh, interest rate increases is source long-term fixed debt. Most of our debt, we have a few deals that are shorter-term debt because we tend to refinance those with no prepay. Most of our debt is fixed for 10 years. So in a rising interest rate environment, and in an inflationary environment, we feel like we're well positioned because our revenue in theory is going to increase as inflation continues and our cost of capital is going to stay the same. Now, at some point, we have to refinance or sell, right? 10 years is not forever, but that's quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. It gives you enough runway, at least. 
It does. It does. Well, fantastic conversation. I appreciate the uh, deep dive and some of the behind the scenes and how you operate. I'm going to switch us now to the last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Well, I've mentioned this on a few podcasts and I have to find a new book to talk about, but I can't resist talking about this one again. It's, it's a book called In the Kingdom of Ice by Hamden Sides. And it's a book about um, early polar exploration. Back in the day, they thought that if they went far enough north, the ice cap would melt and they could go over the top of the globe to get to Asia. And obviously they found out that wasn't the case. They got stuck in the ice and the survival story is remarkable. Um, A lot of guys passed away in the expedition, but some guys made it out and they made it out by walking into Siberia on foot like a thousand miles and going to the nearest town and bringing everybody back to get their buddies, their buddies had passed away but it makes your challenges of work and your daily existence in real estate seem just so meaningless because uh, it's like, oh, we had a bad deal today or whatever might've happened. We, we had a bank fail us or someone didn't come through on a funding round, um, but we're not uh, eating the leather off of our shoes and, and watching our buddies slowly pass away. So yeah. it makes it all relative. Yeah. Well, what's crazy enough is in the next hundred years, the ice might melt to where you can do that. I know there's a lot of talk about the Northwest Passage or the North yeah, Passage maybe, now. Maybe eventually that's good to go. But uh, I think if that happens, we got bigger problems. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Our second one is, I believe the person that you'll become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things and the habits that you do every single day. What are some of the things that you do every single day? One thing, um, well, I've got a three and two year old. So routine is kind of challenging. Uh, you know, bedtime is tough, bath time, all that stuff, dinner. Uh, one thing I do every night though, is I read historic nonfiction. I'm a voracious historic nonfiction reader, a lot of biographies. And, uh, I like learning about what other leaders have done and how they've been successful and how they've failed. And that's, uh, that's kind of my evening routine. I read on my phone. Um, so I don't get my wife up with a, with a light and a hard copy book, but, uh, yeah, that's what I do every night before I go to bed. I can't wait to your uh, last question then here, but our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Take risk, take risk. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people will ask, oh, how do I get started? What do I do? I can't find the perfect deal. Go out and do something, go out yep. and take a risk. And if you fail, you'll learn and you can apply those mistakes to the next deal. And all this, all this real estate stuff, you can read books and listen to podcasts, but you're not going to learn unless you actually go out and do it. That's it. I've said it multiple times. I know people that have done millions and millions of dollars of transactions, people that have done uh, zero transactions, but I've known no one that's just done one real estate deal. (laughs) I love that. Nice. Nice. Um, Our fourth one is what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? Well, this is kind of going to sound hokey, but um, I would say marrying my wife. I, I chased her for a long time. We met in 2003. We finally got married in 2015. We broke up. We got back together. I would have gotten married, you know, when I was in my early 20s, but she wasn't ready. So I finally locked her down. We got two kids and uh, we're good to go. But uh, she she is my unicorn. And I, I caught the unicorn. Man, you said 2003 to 2015? Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a long big, chase. Big gaps. Big gaps in there too. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? This will also sound kind of hokey. Uh, George Washington. Okay. Why? George Washington. Yeah. I've read all of his biographies, studied him, such an amazing leader. And there are so many instances in his life where if one little different thing would have happened, America wouldn't be here. And maybe it would be, but uh, that would, uh, that'd be the guy. Yeah, I think his decision to to step down and not go for that third term uh, was such a against the times too, oh, and such so, what everybody yeah. knew. 
They were so anti-royalty and anti-dictatorships and anti-king um, that really demonstrated and kind of set up America for what it would become. We got our problems, but uh, we're the greatest country in the world. Yep. Yep. So I, knew really you would, I knew you would have a good answer for that. Um, <laughs> right. Well, Jacob, fantastic conversation. I appreciate the institutional level that you brought to this asset class for many that don't know this asset class out there. What's the best way they can kind of get in touch with you and learn more? Folks can go to our website, which is vanwestpartners.com. They can email me, jacob at vanwestpartners.com or hit me on LinkedIn, Jacob Vanderslice. Perfect. We'll leave all that in the show notes. And thanks again, Jacob. Matt, good to meet you. Thanks for having us on today. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.